We'll be finishing Romans 6. Our, our focus will be on verses 20 to 23, and I realized I started Romans 6, and now I get to, get to drive it on home today. So Paul, he starts out by posing a question that he, he had anticipated previously in, in chapter 5, where he said, where grace abounded, or uh, where sin abounded or increased because of the law, grace abounded much more. And he had anticipated the antinomian coming out of the woodwork and saying, well, we got grace, let's just live how we please. And that was not the right answer. He, he says, what shall we say then in response to the antinomian? The response was meganoito. It's, it's the highest form of no, God forbid. Don't even think about that. That's not, should never even come to your mind. He likens our previous lives to being slaves. And uh, we were, we had a, a slave master that, that just used us. And we were, we liked being used by this slave master. The, the word was the, the doulos. It means willing servant. Paul uses this same language in, in the first chapter of, of Romans, uh, Romans 1 1. I, Paul, a bondservant of, of Christ, the doulos, the bondservant. So a willing servant is the idea. And in chapter 6, sanctification is the, is the idea here. So sanctification again begins immediately after justification. So justification happens, and then from that point on, you're being sanctified. And it's the process of being made more Christ-like. And that's why the Holy Spirit working in, in conjunction, as Josh said, whenever, with, with the Word of God. H.B. Uh, Charles told me not to quote him anymore when we were in California, but, but he summed it up so well. He said that the sanctification is, is the will of God for the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to make you more like the Son of God. So that's me not quoting H.B. Charles. I. He said, just use it. He, I, I told him, I was like, I always quote you on that because it's, it's so brilliant, I think. So you have been sanctified, you're being sanctified, and you will be sanctified fully. It's coming. Charles Spurgeon, hold your amens. Liken sanctification to refining gold. And this process of refining gold is when you melt it and then all the impurities come to the top, right? And then you, you can scrape it off. He says, the most golden faith or the purest degree of sanctification to which a Christian ever attained on earth has still so much alloy in it as to be only worthy of the flames in itself. So if you think you're getting somewhere, just back up and punt. It's not to say that the Spirit of God is not working in you. He's just saying you've got a long ways to go no matter how far you've been. We're still sinners. We're saved by grace and we're positionally saints in, in the eyes of God. We're fully sanctified in the eyes of God. When he looks at us, he sees his son. Just as, as Christ was the, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, our sanctification is much like that. It's it's from all eternity. We, we, we're sanctified in the same respect. It is, it was, and is as good as done. That's a promise. Now in this newness of life, we became slaves of righteousness, bondservants of Christ. This term Greek, again, is doulos. 
Paul, again, as we went over when we began this chapter, is borrowing from Exodus 21, when uh, every seven years the, the slave master would let a slave go. And if he wanted to stay because he loved his master so much, the master treated him very well. He would pierce his ear, and he stayed the rest of his life. This was a willing servant. He loved his master. Their masters had taken great care of them, so they opted to stay. That was their free choice to do so. So we're either slaves of sin or slaves to righteousness. That's really all you can be. Being slaves to righteousness means we're free in Christ. We were talking before the service, and as Josh said, have you ever thought about being a slave to Christ is the only type of slave that's ever existed where the master did all the work? He did it. Like he, he did all the work for you. No other slave. Like, it'd be like me showing up for work, and uh, my boss does all the work for me that, you know, every day, not just that day, but they just do all the work for me, and I just hang out and collect a check. The master does the work. Free in Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight, very familiar. I want to read it so I don't get it wrong. Not Matthew twenty eight, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, you all, who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My burden is easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It doesn't get any simpler than that. We're slaving away in this field of sin, and we're in a new field for Christ with that yoke on us. Not a yoke of bondage, but Christ's yoke now that's, that's easy and light. Martin Lloyd-Jones, not Joins, as Todd likes to remind me of. It kind of goes, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've been reminded of that. Josh has quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones. I did it again for the last, like, four Sundays, and I get a text, like, Joins, you know. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, It's always easier after you say something stupid. Doesn't take long for me, right? So Romans 6, if, you, if you're able, please stand with me as we give honor to God's word. Verses 20 to 23. God's word says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our merciful Father, as we come before you this morning, I ask you to bless the preaching of your word. Lord, remove all hindrance from me. Cleanse me now. Make me worthy to even speak one jot or tittle of your word. Lord, bless the the hearer of your word. May it be a comfort to them. May it encourage them. And Lord, 
necessary, convict them. Lord, have your way with us this morning. We love you and we praise you. And it's the matchless name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We all pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. So when we were slaves of sin, we were free in regard to righteousness. So slave do loss again. Same thing, bond servant. And a bond servant, if you had children uh, under a master, so if, if you were a slave and you had children, that master, your children come in under that master also. He owned the children. And it's interesting, they're the property of that master. And when we were born into sin, it was our master. Like, you had no choice. So from, from the original sin all the way back to Adam, by one man's sin, death into the world, sins carry it on throughout the generations. You're born into the family of sin. The bond, the slave master is sin. You belong to sin. And we delighted in serving our master because it's all we knew. We didn't know any better. It was, it was what it was. If you look back up in verse 17, it says, we obeyed from the, the heart that, from that doctrine, the doctrine of, of lawlessness. This is, this, is what we, this is what we liked from the heart. Paul is asking the Romans now to consider the lives before coming to Christ and then their lives after. Being, being slaves to, to sin, you owed righteousness nothing. In turn, righteousness can make no demands of you. You could not, doesn't work. I don't know righteousness. Righteousness can't ask me anything or demand anything of me. I'm only capable of sin. Or I've heard pastors get irritated. You know, this country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles and the, the government's so unbiblical and these people are unbiblical and they're shaking their fists at all these people. And I'm like, what do you expect? They're slaves. They're slaves of sin. They're, they're, they're toiling in that field for their master. They're working for the master. Sons of Satan. I don't know what you expect if God's still working on me, a sinner who fails multiple times a day or hundreds of, I don't know. A lot. My, ask, my wife asks, what's wrong with me? I'm like, a lot. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, don't have, I don't have a lot of time to explain. Well, what do you expect from an unconverted person but sin? It's, it's what they know. It's what they do. It's their vocation. Sin. In Philippians 3, verses 3 to 9, it says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone th else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm also circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, a, a, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is the law, blameless, or we thought. But what things were gained to me, those I have counted a loss for Christ, yet indeed I also count all those things a loss from, 
the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. All his attributes and accomplishments meant nothing compared to the knowledge of Christ. This guy was, he was somebody, a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee. He'd grown up into it, studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the, the great high priest. And what did he say? It's, it's rubbish, dung. His greatest deeds, crap. That's what it was. That's what he says. No matter how religious or, or, or you thought you were or, or how ignorant you thought you were to the law, your best efforts were only dung, worthless. And here Matthew 24 tells us that you cannot serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You can't have it both ways, as Josh mentioned. You can't be a, a carnal Christian. You can't have one foot on one side of the fence and the other foot straddled over. You can't ride that fence. And then Paul begins to contrast our lives as slaves to sin to the new life we have in Christ. He, he says, what fruit have you then in the things which you are now ashamed? What good are the things that brought you shame or bring you shame now to think of? What good is it to even go back or consider going back to those things? Before salvation, they really didn't bring you shame, only maybe a little embarrassment from possibly getting caught, right? I don't see, I don't want anybody see that, know that I did that or, or what have you. But not shame. These are natural. It was your job, your vocation, you were a slave to sin. You ever, I do this, you ever think of a movie that you used to like? Like, I want to watch this movie. And you turn it on, and it's like, I can't believe I watched this movie. <laughs> and then you immediately turn it off. It's embarrassing. Or even worse, you turn on something that you used to watch, and your kid's right there that you think, <laughs> this wasn't a bad movie, and it's like, I'm an idiot. And then you have to explain, hey, Dad, Dad was a bad guy. Shame's healthy, though. It's, it's a mark of, of conversion. If you, if you could still sin with no shame, I, w- I would question your salvation. Or If you could just flippantly do whatever and not have, have any remorse for it. And, and shame really is, a, is a, a loving father chasing in his child, right? The, the guilt that comes from it for the believer when you mess up, you, you've... You, you feel some shame, right, and, and a little bit of guilt, and that's healthy. A father doesn't chasten a child that's not his, or a, a child that's not his. He doesn't discipline them. Shame is, is the spirit of God awakening the conscience to, to the reality of what sin is. If it's, we acknowledge that our old past life is, is shameful. Shame leads to humility. It, it drives you to understand that you're, you're not so great. Self-esteem's out the door. No more self-help books. 
Don't live your best life now. When someone comes to me broken hearted over their sin, I'm glad. You know, I'm like, good. That's, that's, that's a healthy thing, you know. I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're upset. That's a good starting point. If you, if you weren't worried about your sin, I would be worried. We need to reconsider some things at that point. In trials, we think of trials as, you know, almost anything that causes us any discomfort, and that could be the case. The everyday struggles, how am I going to pay this bill? My boyfriend's mad at me. Something didn't go the way I thought it should, on and on and on. And a lot of times we bring, blame our struggles on the old devil, like the old, you know, old devil's attacking me. My wife's mad at me. I lost my car keys. We were at a Q&A at a, a church, and this lady asked the pastor, said that she almost got hit by somebody in a red Cadillac. And she wanted to know if that was an attack from the devil. And I couldn't, I didn't know the devil drove a red Cadillac. I mean, just any little thing, you know, like any little bad thing that almost happened is a, it's a spiritual attack. And, it, you know, maybe you're a jerk to your wife or maybe you should look where you're going instead of pulling out in front of a red Cadillac. It doesn't, it's not like that. Trials happen. Things happen. And of all the trials, sin is the greatest of trials. You, you, you meet it, you either, you're going to either defeat it or, or fall into it. You can't blame it on the old devil. He didn't make you do it. You did it if you fall into it. And what do you understand when we're dealing with trials? What does James say? He says, count it all joy the various trials you're about to fall into. Well, you're like, well, shame doesn't bring me joy. No, it, do, it doesn't. Kind of, sort of doesn't. But it's good. Any, any trial you go through is like, it's like exercise for your soul. Even sin. I, uh, I enjoy trail running. I was thinking of what Paul had said to Timothy. He likened, he likened, uh, our Christian walk in the end of the race. He's finished the race is the terminology he uses. So I've ran a few trail races. I like to run in the woods. I like being in the woods. And the thing about it is around here, you're either, it's, it's steep. It's sometimes it's so steep, it's all you can do to just keep moving forward. And even going downhill, sometimes you, it's so hard going downhill because you have to hold back to keep from falling down a mountain. And when I, you know, when I started getting heavier into it, I would get shin splints, and my, it was real painful, right? And then after a while, the, the muscles along my, my shins developed, and I didn't get shin splints anymore. And then my, my calves and everything developed, and I, they didn't hurt as much anymore. And I, I went to a massage therapist a couple of days ago, and she grabbed my legs, and she says, you're a hiker. Because she could tell by the way my legs were um, that I, I used them a lot. Now, it was painful having shin splints and my legs cramping up and all these things. It, it hurt, but my muscles are developing. You know, muscles develop. They, they rip and they tear, and it's painful. And then when they, when they heal back, they heal back stronger, and they build up stronger, and they, 
they become more suitable for what you're using them for. So you're adapting to that environment. So I don't particularly enjoy it, but it's making me stronger. So shame is, is the tearing of your spiritual muscles, right? It's tearing you down. It's bringing you down. It hurts. And like exercise, rest is necessary for, for healing, right? You, you take it easy, and those muscles heal, and then the next thing you know, the next time you try the thing that you were doing, it's easier. It gets easier and easier. You lift, and you got lift weights, you know. One, one week you can lift this much, and then you keep pushing. Your muscles get sore, and you keep pushing. So you're tearing your, your spiritual muscles, and it hurts, and we find rest. The shame forces you to rest because you're tired and you ache. And where do we find our rest? It's in Christ. He is our rest. Come unto me, y'all. You are labored and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Healing at the cross, at the foot of the cross. This weekend, all these men were talking, and they mentioned going through the epistles, and I think it was Avondroth. He says, read about Jesus. You know, we, we want, we treat the epistles like these self, self-help books sometimes. Like, we read them, and it's like, okay, this is what I will need to do, and this is what I need to do, and I need to check this box, and I need to act this way, because this is what it says. But we don't look at Jesus' life enough, and that's what he said, and that's an excellent point. There's healing at the cross. There's rest and meditating on the promises of God. We struggle with sin. We're going to continue to struggle with sin. Shame strengthens us. It, it helps us to resist sin. It makes you stronger. Well, as Paul says, shall we go on sinning that, that shame may abound? No. May it never be. You're forgiven of every sin, past, present, future, and it does not mean you have a license to sin. You don't need any extra exercise. Trust me. There's plenty. You get plenty of that without trying. And what about when Paul says all things are, are lawful? He goes on to say not all things are profitable. You'll be forgiven, but it benefits you nothing. Resistance builds strength also. Resist. Stay back. We're commanded to resist the things that we're ashamed of. We don't, we don't want to do those things. We do resist those things. Resistance is the healthier option. Focus on Christ. Resist. Shame hurts. It reminds us of our old master. didn't know any better before, but now you don't like that old master. The new one is so much better. We, we can't willingly return to him. It's, it's contrary to our new nature. No benefit in willfully sinning. Only brings shame. No fruit. No benefit, as Paul says. Grace is not permission. Grace is a product of remission, a cancellation of debt. Again, willfully sinning is fruitless. Why? For the end of those things is death, Paul says. The outcome of shameless sin is death. It's a spiritual death, an eternal death, torment and hell. 
A believer cannot be proud of who they were before salvation. It's not possible. By the world's standards, it didn't matter how good or bad that everyone else thought you were or how good you thought you were. You had fallen short, deserving only the wrath of God, as we had learned earlier in Romans. John Calvin writes, As soon as the godly begin to be enlightened by the Spirit of Christ and the gospel proclaimed, they freely acknowledge that the whole of their past life which they lived without Christ is worthy of condemnation. So far from trying to excuse it, they are in fact ashamed of themselves. Indeed, they go farther and continually bear their disgrace in mind so that the shame of it may make them more truly aware and willingly humble before God. Shame brings humility. Old slave master, all he does is work you to death. You would have taken it willingly, a willing servant, born into sin. But you didn't know better. Now you know, you know better, your eyes are open, you can see. You've got the new master. The fruit of unashamed labor to sin is death, only death. No other reward. If practicing those such things are worthy only of death, why would a child of God even think about it? It only brings death. May it never be. As slaves of God, we owe righteousness no attention. The fruit of sin, which we are now ashamed, ultimately death. And then it says... But now, having been set free from sin and becoming slaves of God, you, were, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Set free from sin, you were dead to sin, you died to sin. You were resurrected with Christ into this newness of life. You're useless to the old master, you died to him. You know, he's maybe poking you with a stick, wondering what happened to his slave. You're just laying there dead. We're not incapable of sin, obviously, but we're no, we're no longer its helpless slave. It doesn't dominate our lives anymore. It's been defeated. Our full sanctification is as good as done. We're now slaves to God, and it changes. This word slaves, dulao, it it means to be made a slave. It was passive. It happened to you. You didn't, you didn't submit. You did afterwards, but you were made a slave. Reborn. We were a willing slave in verse 20 and also verse 17 and 22. In verse 18, we, we see a contrast. and we were, we were made slaves to righteousness and to God. It, was, it came from outside of you. So the Armenian would have yet another problem here. Slaves never chose their masters. It didn't work like that. Born into this servitude, being slave to sin, you had, you had really no choice. Being reborn into holiness, you had no choice. You become slaves of righteousness. Your first birth, you had nothing to do with. Your second birth, you had nothing to do with. If you 
If you thought you did, you're sadly mistaken. I don't, you don't really, that's why they liken it to being, they say be born again, because you got nothing to do with it. Everyone ever, that has ever lived has been one of two types of slaves apart from Christ. A slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. I guess he was more of a slave of righteousness if he wanted to go there. One commands lawlessness, commands. The other produces righteousness. That's the master working for the servant. You hear these apologists, God is a gentleman. He would never impose his will on anyone. He's a gentleman. This theology or lack of, of theology. And the first thing that comes to mind is like, have you ever, you ever read Jonah? Or how about Paul's conversion? In 1 Samuel, uh, Saul sent the messengers to, to find David because he wanted to kill him. He sent one set of messengers and they went. And those messengers started prophesying with the other prophets. He sent another set of messengers, and those messengers started prophesying with the other prophets. He sent another set of messengers, and those messengers started prophesying with the prophets. Saul's like, well, you guys aren't getting the job done, so I'm going to go. Then the next thing he knows, he's stripped naked, prophesying with the other prophets. (laughs) So... God can and will take a disobedient child or an enemy and, and do with it as he wishes. You know, it, didn't, it was like, hey, Saul, would you mind getting naked and you know, maybe preaching for me? It, it, it didn't work like that. Could you imagine going to kill somebody and the next thing you know you're naked preaching? <laughs> That's what happened. I didn't get no amens there, did I? <laughs> hey Saul, the, the other one, Paul, would you mind stop kicking against the goads and maybe stop persecuting my people and killing them? No, it was, it was hey Saul, stop. What was his immediate response? Lord, didn't ask any questions. Jesus didn't ask Simon, Peter, and Andrew if they, you know, hey, you guys want to come with me? He said, come with me. And they did. And apart from Jonah, I don't, I don't remember any of these people complaining. Even, even Saul preaching naked. Being slaves of God, the fruit is holiness. It's produced in us. Good fruit. Holiness here is hagiosmos. Some of yours may say the, the fruit is sanctification. Hagiosmos means consecration, purification, sanctification of the heart. We were made holy in the sight of a holy father by the finished work of a holy son. Then his Holy Spirit produces holiness in us, conforming us to his image. And the end of holiness is eternal life. I know most people in here probably aren't offended by the word slave, but everybody's a slave to somebody. You got a job, you're a slave to your boss. You're a CEO, you have a board. You have people you answer. If you completely work on your own as a contractor or do anything else, you're a slave to your customer. It doesn't matter. You're a slave to the government. You have to pay taxes. 
Everyone answers to someone. I'm a slave to this church, my family. I answer to them, you guys. The only true freedom is in Christ. The only true freedom you have is in Christ. You mean slaves to God. And Paul starts to sum it up here, or he does sum up this chapter. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Got two absolute truths. A spiritual death is earned. A life of sin is, is compensated by death. Apart from Christ, this is everyone's due reward, your due payment. You earned it. Or two, the gift of God is life eternal. By definition, a, a gift is free, right? And then what do we do? Armenian will, will tell you after you pray this prayer and you sign this card, you receive your King James Bible because that's the only authorized version. You must maintain this gift by doing X, Y, or Z, and you, you could lose your salvation. Don't, don't mess up. You could lose it. The Calvinistic lordship person will tell you to repent and believe the gospel. That's good news. That's good stuff. It's absolutely true. But since you have this gift, you must do X, Y, and Z because he is Lord and he's commanded these things, and absolutely he does. But not in the way you think. Both of these inevitably are performance-based, right? So you're, you're inadvertently placing works right back on your shoulders. You're just... Throwing that right back on your shoulders. It's not the, he did all he can do and now the rest is up to you, right? That's some awesome theology right there, isn't it? Negative. So these things ultimately bring shame because trying to meet these demands only brings an unhealthy shame because you know you can't do it. I've had so many conversations, and I've, Richard's probably remembered phone calls I've had with him. I'm like, man, I can't do this. I can't. Like, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to be better, and I can't be better. I can't be better. And then I'm, I'm, trying, I'm, I'm, te- I'm a teacher. I'm a preacher. But I, I'm doing these. I'm, I can't do it. What does he say? I'd be worried if you didn't feel that way. But that's an unhealthy shame. Right? I mean, I was broken hearted, and that's healthy. To the point of despair, it's not healthy. You think about original sin. What was the original sin? They didn't trust God. Right? When you sin, the greater sin is not trusting God. When you doubt, when you doubt your salvation, you doubt God, you doubt His promises. Same as the original sin, from all the way back. You're not trusting. We tell unbelievers to repent and believe. Hey, repent and believe. Right? What should we do when we sin? Repent and believe. Preach the gospel to yourself. Repent, believe in that promise. 
both will say you're the Armenian and the Lordship crowd will say you're, you're saved by grace through faith, and then it's like that old commercial, but wait, there's more. There's more. Hold on. And just, let's not, not get too ahead of ourselves. The law and the grace combined tell us that, that we can't. You can't do it. And what does grace say? It says he did, and, and he, he, he could, and he did. Jesus is absolutely 1,000, 1 million percent Lord. We were commanded to repent and believe. The thief on the cross, he didn't, he didn't have time to go to a Bible study. He wasn't baptized. He had no deep theology. He never had time for any good works. He didn't make it to church three times a week because you've got to have three to thrive. He didn't visit orphans and widows. He didn't minister to anyone in jail after his conversion. He didn't do anything. All he had time for was what? Repent and believe. And what did Jesus say? He says, this day you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, hey, you need to get off that cross and get to work. Every time someone mentions baptismal regeneration, I'm like, what about the thief on the cross? Don't think for a second that I'm counting works out. I, I think works are are a, an essential component in the life of a child of God, but works, works are a product of the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God working through those. They are a product of salvation. They are a product. If, if salvation were a factory, it was producing works. We have this new nature inclined toward the things of God. Those things produce, or that produces good works. If we were capable of good works, Romans 4 says God would owe us. Like, I well, owe you one. You, you fed the poor. You, you visited the widows. You clothed, the, clothed some people and fed some people. Owe you one. If, if you think about it, the Armenian and the, and the Lordship, heavy Calvinists are not really so far apart. It's performance-based. You must perform. Right? You've got to do it. And I think one of the gentlemen this weekend was talking about scare tactics, that, that the preachers are afraid to, to, to be heavy on grace. They're afraid to tell you too much about grace because they think antinomianism will be the product of it. I, I heard one preacher say that he, he never tells anybody all that he knows. I won't tell everybody all that I know. What a selfish thing. I would tell you anything I know. Got 10 minutes after church, we can hash that out. Tell you all I know. The reality is that we will. We will do these things by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. It's not that we must. We will. And what is this eternal life? Let's look at John 17. Verses 1 to 3. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, 
that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What else do you need to know? Eternal life in Jesus' own words. So just as our our justification is is a work from beginning to end, our sanctification is a work from beginning to end. The reality is we're not very good slaves. And the greater reality is that we have a good master. We have a master that purchased us, does all the work for us. And through his spirit, he begins to make us more like himself. From justification through sanctification all the way into glorification is the work of God and God alone. All works of God. All are by grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. As I was meditating on this section of scripture, I was, I was thinking about grace and how, how can we fathom grace. And I thought about, you know, the richest man in the world. Well, there's more grace than the richest man in the world. And then I thought, well, there's more grace than all the richest men in the world. And then I was like, well, how about there's more grace than every man that has ever lived great and small, all their riches and lack thereof combined, any possession you could think of, there's more grace than all of that. And I thought, what if grace was a river? It would be infinitely wide, flowing from all eternity with a depth that cannot be fathomed. It's not flowing gently, but it's a raging river that comes to a giant fall and pours out on you. And there's still more grace than that. You were a child of the king. He has a crown of righteousness waiting for you that you were running toward. These peaks are sometimes high and the valleys are often low. But all you got to do is keep running. You don't look back. You've already won. And merciful Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done, this great master that does the work for the slave. Lord, let this sermon not end here. Bond it to our hearts. Magnify our Lord through us. Let us be lights in this dark world. We love you and we praise your holy name. All of God's children said, Amen.